0: This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here with Dr. Angela Riotto. Welcome. Hi. And we're here today with a very special episode talking to Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean from CAD. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So let's start off with a kind of a very simple explanation. Um, What is CAD?
1: So CAD is the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate. It is TRADOC's manager and producer of Key and Capstone Army Doctrine. We also provide support and an architecture overall for the Directorates of Training and Doctrine at the Centers of Excellence across the Army's branches. So all doctrine eventually comes back to our shop and our houses to be able to both validate, certify, and review so it nests appropriately with all of our operating concepts.
0: So basically, if I'm understanding correctly, you are writing all of the FMs and ADPs that the Army uses in the field.
1: Yes and no. So it's a, it's a whole crew of us together. So it's both GS employees, but also green suitors as well. Um, my particular division is the command and control division. So we primarily focus on the planning and uh, command post doctrine. So things like ADP-5060. Um, our team also has had a hand in writing ADP-622 because there is a very close relationship, obviously, between a commander and leadership. Mm-hmm and also uh, the FMs that are supported by that. Most recently, uh, our team is now wrestling and tackling the ADP 313, just dealing with information. Mm -hmm. So all of that comes together. Um, We also do participation in other big manuals. So I think everybody's really excited for the idea of FM3O operations to come out eventually. Um, But we do provide feedback and inclusion and some of us have been authors in that as well. So, I'm one of those individuals who's written that, written, had, had a chance to participate in that book because right. it is a, it's a big effort the Army participated in writing that book.
0: Okay, before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about your background. So, so tell us a little bit about your um, military background first.
1: So, I'm an attack reconnaissance pilot by trade. Uh, I'm actually one of those rare individuals who I still. Uh, hold my, I'm um, still a 15 series aviator. I have not jumped over to any sort of functional area and I have stayed in that community my entire career. Um, I spent brief while working in a down at Tactical Echelons both on a division cavalry squadron when it was under an old MTO way back when. Um, and then I went to an aviation brigade briefly. This is also my second time writing Doctrine for the Army. I wrote Aviation Doctrine briefly back when we were transitioning to what was known as the Doctrine 2015 program, which introduced ADPs, the Army Doctrine Publications, uh, to the Army and gave us capstone and then supporting doctrine underneath with the techniques publications. So that was, that's kind of my experience in that arena. Um, I've also, I am one of the lucky few that went to, uh, was selected, thankfully, and went to SAMS, the School of Advanced Military Studies, where um, I did utilization tours as well. I've been over to the peninsula to Korea and worked there and also spent some time, as a lot of people my age do, in Iraq and Afghanistan a few times. So Mm -hmm. I have a pretty varied and wide background. One area that I would say um, has kind of benefited me over the years, and especially in this job, is uh, still maintaining at least a, a very strong interest in... Professional writing and contribution to the professional dialogue mm-hmm. for the military, things like writing for journals, writing for external journals like the Strategy Bridge and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's that's kind of kept me interested in this idea that eventually we all come
2: back to, back to the mothership, back to to CAD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. When you were writing some of the aviation doctrine, was that at uh, Fort Rucker? It was. And were they more like tactical manuals, or were they operational level? Very much so. I
1: but the FARP manual uh, that was a, a big one that we came out with uh, forward arming and, and refueling. Yeah. yeah. So along with that, we DOTDs little little doctrine shops down at these these individual branches in the COEs will come up again back to the mothership <laughs> to be able to to work with with larger FMs and ensure that equities within those branches are captured and reflected. So that way, when we when we publish what we know is combined arms doctrine, it's genuinely combined arms. Mm-hmm. Everybody has had a chance to to ensure that that we accurately represent that in in our doctrine. So, mm-hmm. um, one of the big things when I was a writer down at DOTD in Fort Rucker was it was during a time when we were rewriting FM three twenty four, the counterinsurgency manual, mm-hmm. and there was so much activity and so much interest in doing that. Um, Oddly enough, that petered out after about a year. (laughs) But there was some opportunity for, at that point, young Captain Dean just off of company command and off of a deployment to Afghanistan to to stand back and do an assessment and work with big names like Conrad Crane, um, David Kilcullen was getting involved, John Nagel, all these big names. And And then there's this little captain, aviation captain sitting in the back like, um
2: I repeat, but helicopters are awesome. Well, that just shows like how actually relevant and applicable your experience was to writing doctrine. Yeah, you're not an outsider, you're actually someone who witnessed it and actually flew helicopters and knows how it works to support counterinsurgency.
1: It was It was genuinely an experience. <laughs> and I, I'm glad to know that there is still opportunities for those for young writers that are interested, uh, both on the NCO side and on the what I would consider the company grade officer side. To, to partner and to work with capstone doctrine, to leave, something that's going to leave a lasting impression on the army. I know we joke about things like, well, every four years we're rewriting a new FM 30 or every few years we're rewriting a manual. Doctrine is a constantly living, breathing mm-hmm. thing, which means it's going to evolve and change, and it's never going to be solid and finished. Mm-hmm. A lot of people really have this love and i do too i I deeply appreciate marine corps doctrine their capstone manuals have stood the test of time they're about two decades old now um and they're they're solid but at the same time there is they, they even themselves will evolve their techniques oriented publications frequently because they constantly have to come back to are we appropriately accounting for changes to their organizations, for changes to tactics, changes to enemy and terrain that they're experiencing? That's like, but I know everybody says that it's extremely stable books, but yeah, when you look at our books too, the last time FM3O really was, was genuinely written on was... Six years ago, yeah, two thousand sixteen. Yeah,
0: and in in uh, fairness to the Marine doctrines, their stable doctrines tend to be very general. They are. So it's that helps the stability. Hence right? the
2: capstone, right? So right. that's like ADP one zero three yep. zero six zero five zero. The big books that that cover the the big
1: concepts, right? The the big ideas, if you will, that that govern how the Army sees itself and sees itself in relation to its forces, mm-hmm. the enemy and its terrain that it might be operating in, in a joint construct.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, but and before we dive into more of these details, um, you also have a, a, a civilian academic side, so could you, could you give us a little bit of detail on that?
1: I do, um, like a lot of students here, you know, you go, you do the, the round-out degree for your master's degree when you're here for Command and General Staff College. Um, I also did SAM, so you walk away with a Master's in Military Arts and Sciences, and it's like, all right, well, that's a lot of defense doctrine. Where my academic experience pivots is uh, I am currently a student in uh, University of Kansas attending their museum studies program, graduate program. So uh, one of the big areas that I love to focus on is the linkages between material culture, the things that we look at on walls, the things that we see behind glass vitrines and, and any museum and show context to how that relates to our current experiences and probably one of the most novel things that I've ever heard somebody say is doctrine is an artifact that Mm -hmm. was from Dr. Butler Smith who kind of had gone over to office one day and you sit down and I'm like abs give me wisdom and next thing you know she lays that one at my feet and it's never it hasn't left me Mm -hmm. since I've been here is this idea that doctrine it is our Best bad idea at one moment in time with the force as it currently is for a war in the future, we hope we never have to fight. Mm-hmm. So it shows both this idea of how the Army sees itself in society and how it sees its social image. You see things changing like that, but it also sees, how, it shows an evolution as you look at different doctrine, different operations books across the, the spectrum and say, oh, hey, here's where we adapted to new technology, here's where we adapted to new formations, here is where we increased the number of soldiers that we had and we viewed our formations differently, here's where we shrunk down the amount of forces that we had and we viewed our mission sets uniquely, here's where we incorporated nuclear technology Mm -hmm. and we had like Davy Crockett's and things, here is where we stopped doing that and we started to focus on counterinsurgency with the war on Mm -hmm. terror. You can see that changing socially, you know, we no longer use gender-specific pronouns in the books, there's a reason for that. It's because mm-hmm. there's now women serving in combat operations, and we realize that, hey, commanders will not always be he. Mm-hmm. Perhaps now it's time to change that. You see this evolution that occurs within each of these manuals, and it's really cool. I know it seems very like nerdy, but it's very cool. No, it's yeah, super that's cool. cool. It's, it...
0: That's why we're all here, right? Uh, <laughs> but before we, again, before we go any further and dive into some of these details, let's talk a little bit about about the role of doctrine within the army and kind of within the army structure. So we're we're here in Tradoc in CAC, and and um, Dr. Riotto and I are within CGSC. You're you're within CAD. So for the army, kind of very broadly, what is doctrine?
1: So again, like I said, doctrine is the best bad idea. But really, what it is is doctrine is a manifestation of all of these. Uh, historical experiences that have occurred, right? And we look at patterns across military operations, both on the bigger theater strategic side, but also on the more tactical end. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at all of these patterns that are performed and there's patterns of operations that we have, so things that remain constant, we capture that through lessons learned and experimentation and say, all right, I'm snapping a chalk line and this is the way that we do things right now and that is the simplest way to describe it when actually anytime that I've talked to, to even civilian individuals who have no experience mm-hmm. with the military and anybody is allowed to read doctrine to understand where we sit at a current point in time of our military or of our army um, so that's kind of the way that you would want to look at doctrine as it currently sits now when you look at the architecture of how we in the United States Army have structured our doctrine You have these army doctrine publications that sit at the top. They are the capstone manuals that provide a general understanding of how the army, in principle, or in fundamentals, views itself in relation to its mission. Then you have FMs, which kind of cover, if you're looking at the tactics, techniques, procedures Mm -hmm. sort of, of taxonomy, it kind of covers tactics. These are general principles that gen, you know, prove to be true in the way we order formations, the way we order battles and operations. And then you have techniques, which are typically covered by our Army Techniques publications mm-hmm. that are very, very specific, that cover those things that, yes, this is the way that we have done them consistently, it's the way that's proven to be best, but at the same time we understand that techniques may evolve and change, and that deviations may occur at formations. Mm-hmm. It's a great way for us to be able to evolve a tactic to get after a specific environment you're working in. And then there's procedures which tend to be covered by Army regulation, by training circulars. Mm -hmm. You gotta do them the same way every single time because lives, safety equipment are Mm -hmm. on the line. Things like the medevac, the call for fire, those sorts of procedures that have to be done the same way. That's generally how doctrine breaks itself down for the Army. We fit into a larger construct of joint doctrine, and we also do have multinational doctrine. We have NATO doctrine. There is ALSA Publications, which is the Air Sea Application Center, that provides us everybody's favorite, JFIRE, um, but also provides us other multi service manuals that help with techniques. So that way, you know, I look across the table in Marine and it's, oh, hey, I know that you know that we all know what we're all talking mm-hmm. about when we say this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a, a quick, very very rough breakdown so, of what is
0: that's doctrine. Awesome. Thank yeah, you. And, and so we have now referenced FM3O, the operations manual, which used to be FM100-5 back yep, in the day. Why is that manual so important, and if we're being honest, often so contentious?
1: Oh, that's a great question. It's So first of all, it's important because it's operations, right? You know, the Army does military operations. And it provides the foundation and architecture for us to talk about offense defense and stability and the different tactics that flow out from those when we order and arrange forces to do a mission. So it tends to be the book even though it is it is not capstone in itself, of itself or not meant to be in that, you know, ADP FM ATP structure, it ultimately becomes this kind mm-hmm. of like giant pivot point around which everything. And
0: also, you might it, call it a center of gravity.
1: You could I get yeah, yeah, I guess you could. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I don't know if however we
2: destroy right. destroy the FM3O oh, an army would collapse, but let's hope not.
0: Well it's Please, not an it's army not or army capital.
1: So, <laughs> be so many decisive points. Um the the truth be told is why is it contentious? Alright, so because it introduces, first of all, that first tension that we experience between concepts and doctrine. The concepts are they're the beautiful gems of what could possibly be in the future with the right formations and with the ideal circumstances against Mm -hmm. an enemy in which we know for a fact we have a relative advantage right where we build things towards this um it is i don't want to say it's the rosy colored glasses but at times you know when you're when you're talking about concept writers versus doctrine writers it's like there's doctrine writers who are these realists that kind of you know live on caffeine and a little bit of pessimism and just (laughs) then there's concept writers who are like they are writing something that almost feels rosy colored in a way you know like how do I how do I find that tension or how do I balance that tension and FM3O unfortunately carries a lot of that burden on its shoulders because introducing a concept that's going to carry the army for about six to seven maybe even eight years until a new book
2: comes out so you can give us an example of a concept and an actual doctrine. So like MDO, multi-domain operations, is that a concept or is that doctrine?
1: It's a little bit of both now. Ooh, see? So, um, so multi-domain battle and multi-domain operations is actually in the current edition of FM3. Oh, Which the, is 2017. the 2017 edition. Yeah, right. the 2017 edition. Um, it's going to eventually become the obsolete or old edition. No doctrine is obsolete. That hurts me when I say that out loud. Um,
0: Prior edition.
1: It's a it's a previous edition. It's, a, it's an older edition. It's first edition. First edition. <laughs> it's worth more. It is so fancy. Um, but when you're looking at at how these concepts get introduced, you you want to see that they're at least somewhat valid, somewhat mm-hmm. experimented upon, somewhat discussed, and and show that there is an academic underpinning to them. So it's not just quickly introduce a concept and then push it into a book, and you know, maybe maybe eventually we'll get around to working it out in experimentation. There should be a little bit of rigor behind it. And with partnership from Center for Army Lessons Learned, from um, Army University Press and the historians that work there, the historians who work here at the college, uh, the national training centers, Warfighters fighters through um, the MCTP programs, all of that information is bubbling back up to say that what we originally introduced in 2017 with multi-domain operations, yeah, we were not far off. And did we evolve the concept that came out of Futures Command? Sure we did. We always do. And what we realized is, yeah, there's something to this, and the Army is now going to begin that process of incorporating that concept into the rest of its doctrine, which also is going to influence the way that we do things like training doctrine and eventually come back around to potential equipping and manning thoughts but mm-hmm. the doctrine should it's not a driver nor nor driven by those things it should be its own thing its own proven entity that stands the test of time that's that's a tension that's always going to exist of with mm-hmm. books like that.
0: Yeah, and you, you bring up a good point with, with doctrine. Uh, a quote I like to, uh, frankly, abuse is from a Napoleonic general who referred to doctrine as the grammar out of which commanders construct their sentences. Ooh. But on the other hand, as you mentioned, there's also a side of doctrine, which is how you repair a helicopter, right? Mm-hmm. So, so how do you, as a doctrine writer, square the um, probably don't want to improvise helicopter repair with the doctrine that is more conceptual and is the starting point rather than the end point.
1: I always come back to the the taxonomy, you know, the idea of principles and fundamentals and tactics, techniques, procedures and where that sits in the architecture of books. So I here at CAD feel very, very comfortable about talking through the both the esoteric side of like Planning and how does mission command influence the way that we do plans as staff officers, and how does it influence the commander, and what are the different things that we want out of initiative to achieve relative advantages? Those big words, but also at the same time, I can, I can stand back and look at young Captain Dean down at Aviation Center, who is producing techniques-oriented publications that hey you must safety a FARP the same way every time, because people's lives are on the line. That procedure can't change, and the techniques at which you occupy a FARP probably won't change all that much either, but I understand that, that, hey, technology evolves. The way that we do fueling operations evolves. The way that we do helicopter repair uh, out in the field evolves. Occupying a holding area is different that stuff may change and hey, that individual may have more current experience Mm -hmm. coming off of his or her um, platoon or company command time. That, rock on with your bad self, like right to the best of your ability for that. I'll just be sitting up here talking about mission command and command and control <laughs> Which is also a concept, right? Mission command is a concept? It is. It is now a right? philosophy, I believe. It's both. A little bit of both. <laughs> right,
0: right. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with, um, probably internally as well as in in terms of analysis, is where the boundary is between philosophy and prescription. Um, again, it's fairly obvious if we're talking helicopter repair. Yeah. It's less obvious if we're talking about the implementation of, of a concept like multi-domain operations or unified land operations, ULO, or LISCO, um, large-scale combat operations.
1: Yeah, that's it, that's a tricky one, right? Because y- you worry, like, I, the biggest worry that I think a lot of us, and it's a joke, or it's not a joke, but it's a quip that people will make is, you know, I'm gonna go out to NTC and next thing you know, I'm gonna see, like, convergence appear in mission statements, and that's not what that means, you know? I. First of all, I have a lot of faith in brigade commanders and in brigade plans teams that they are going to choose to use the terminology and the taxonomy of our current language correctly because they Mm -hmm. need to communicate with their forces in a way that everybody gets it, right? Mm -hmm. But I get that there is also a risk that we introduce terms or we introduce ideas and we don't necessarily provide them or provide the force with Concrete ways to use them and to not abuse them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I will say that in using this, this experience of, of FM3O operations that we're preparing to release for the 2022 um, fiscal year, it's our 2023 fiscal year, I apologize. Watching the rollout process of, of introducing new doctrine, of saying, hey, we want to share articles about it, we want to have podcasts mm-hmm. like like this, like Breaking Doctrine, we want to have videos, we want to have points at which uh, leadership from here at the Combined Arms Center will go out and actually work with divisions and do a teaching mm-hmm. and seminars to talk through what does this concept mean, how do these different tenets and imperatives get used, how do you look at operations differently against a, a pure threat, how do we view LISCO now in this concept of of a wide, expansive operating environment, like that, that that's important for us to do. We've spent two years thinking about this mm-hmm. this stuff, and that happens with a lot of doctrine writers. You spend so much time focused in, and you're like, I have had a chance to sit here and think and talk with wildly intelligent people within this community. We've enjoyed a level of mental flexibility that the average person or the average soldier and the leader down at the, at the unit level doesn't get a chance to do. So we feel way more comfortable using those terms.
2: We owe it now to the force to provide them that same level of comfort. Yeah, so can you walk us through some of the steps that you use to familiarize people with the doctrine and kind of even clarify the terms a bit more? So if you open a doctrine manual, we know that there's vignettes, there's footnotes, there's little call-out stories. So that's one way. But what are some other ways that you help Like when we talk about Magruder's principle, when it comes to military deception, that people actually understand what that means. So first and foremost, when you any time that you open a book, this has been one of my
1: biggest uh, one of the reasons why I kind of took to social media. Personally, um, was I realized I feel very comfortable working with the body of knowledge, but I've also had a unique upbringing in the community, or first of all with leaders that I had, but also working as a doctrine writer previously. So to introduce somebody to using doctrine mm-hmm. effectively, first of all, you have to teach a young, a young leader or a young soldier how to read doctrine efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know efficiency is not always the, the best way to put it, but it really is when it comes down to it. You have to feel comfortable. What do I read cover to cover? What do I use, you know, the infamous Control-F on a PDF file to find something quickly? And then from there, how do you how do you get that information? How
2: do you... Understand where that information.
1: Our students struggle you. with that right
2: now, so you know, you were a student, and it's that's hard, right?
1: Like, if nobody teaches you that, you learn by you learn by brute force of beating your head against a wall, and you're like, I this this is awful. This book is boring. How do I read it cover to cover? Nobody is going to read FM3O cover
0: to cover. And it's it's a fair point to make that maybe doctrine pubs are not necessarily meant to be read cover to cover.
1: And that is the glory of it, right? Like, I think now we are starting to come to an understanding of. You want to codify a body of knowledge. You don't want to constantly be reinventing a road wheel. You don't need to do that. We've, you have had, or we as an army, have had the benefit of our uh, an entire experience leading up to this of executing combined arms, offense, defense, and stability. So it stands to reason, like, why not learn from history and write that stuff down? And then turn around and understand that, yeah, it's, it's critical to read Capstone Doctrine, like the ADPs, you should feel free to read those cover to cover. I think, actually, ADP 60, ADP 50 is kind of rough to read, like a book. My personal favorite is ADP 101, mm-hmm. The Doctrine Primer, which, read that one cover to cover, it's like 40 pages. It's not hard. Just give it a shot. Promise, it's, it's not bad. Just give it a shot. Crash Course in Army Doctrine, go. It is. It's so good. And then along with it, you're able then to know where where certain doctrine, certain concepts fit within the overall, the overall architecture of all the other books that are out there. And then you grab an FM if you want to know a specific about a tactic, and yeah, control F, and then read everything around that to get you to that, that good understanding. And if it references someplace else to an ATP or to another ATP or to joint doctrine, go to that place and then read that all too. So that way, you feel comfortable in understanding, all right, so I'm, I'm reading about combined arms. Well, what does that mean, overarchingly, according to ADP three O. All right, so what does it mean to FM three O? But it references out to some of this doctrine in the fires community, and some of the doctrine in the sustainment community. What does this mean? Go check it all out, scroll through it, scan through it, and see, just take a mental picture to see where that stuff is. And eventually, you're gonna come back around to it Either a field grade or a senior a senior officer within the military or senior NCO. It's it typically to get familiar and comfortable with the body of knowledge, it takes. It just takes committing a little bit of time every day, or not every day, on occasion. <laughs> I used to joke with with people who were like, "Hey, you know, I don't know if I have 15 minutes." I'm like, "You stand in line at Starbucks for 15 minutes. You can easily pull open a manual, which is." Exactly what I do with a lot of, you know, with my personal social media under the um, That's what I, I kind of gear the, the quick reviews on is you've got 15 minutes in the line at Starbucks or you've got a few minutes here or there. Go ahead and just pop open a book and quickly scroll through it and see and take that mental picture because eventually you may need it later mm-hmm. for something. Or how do you structure a a leader professional development session you've only got 45 minutes with with young officers and young ncos boom here is the way that you can kind of of structure a discussion that's relevant to them
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and let's let's expand a little bit on kind of the the outreach portion of what you do because i think a lot of people might know you from your twitter feed um, which is very lively and engaging. They might know you from your podcast. You mentioned Breaking Doctrine. Yeah. So first of all, what got you into kind of the the outreach to the public, to the wider Army family?
1: I got really lucky. Um, first of all, I heard that CAD was hiring. Um, I was down at Fort Hood working down there. It was time for me to PCS. and I was like, all right, well, now is now's the time. I ended up seeing a position open on... AIM 2.0, which is the hiring module mm-hmm. that we use for the Army. And I was like, ooh, this sounds actually pretty interesting. And at the same time, I had also heard rumors that they were starting up a podcast um, and that they were going to start the process of breaking down doctrine to actually make it applicable, make it interesting to, to a wider audience. I'm like, ooh, I, I want to write, but I also want, I want to do that. I think that there is value in helping younger audiences learn how to read doctrine better.
0: And perhaps older audiences.
1: True, right? It's, you're never too old to learn. Mm-hmm. You're never too old to, to crack open one of our amazing books. But yeah, that, I'm, I'm reaching there. I'm gonna say <laughs> <laughs> you can download That's it. You don't have to break it open. You just <laughs> download it to your computer.
0: And we all understand it's kind of your job to, to yeah. pitch doctrines. So
1: so along with writing um, and going into the, the C2 shop, um, I ended up working FM3O, I was you know, a small, tiny, very, very tiny contribution to the current version of FM5O that's out. Um, and 5O is the... Plans and orders. Okay. So, little things like that where I'm, I'm kind of working away and the next thing you know, they uh, they had mentioned that we're going to start doing a bit more outreach. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind helping out with a podcast or, you know, doing something like that. And then realizing that there was value not just to podcasting but also to the videos which help you know, to at least share some of the terminology and where you can find more information about terms, uh, the idea of the Foxhole Fundamental series which is breaking down things that you find within tactics and techniques publications and making them applicable, especially to the audience here at the Command and General Staff College. Um, and then at one point, somebody somewhere at the pre-command course had made a tweet and tagged in the U.S. Army Doctrine Directorate. And I had shut off my my Twitter account for a long time to the point I didn't even have access back into my old account. I'm like, "Uh, I don't know, I'm not gonna bother with it. (laughs) Next thing you know, my boss calls me and I'm on leave and he's like, hey, you know about this social media stuff. (laughs) I'm trying to know how to reply because I'm helping out with this this question that came up on Twitter. I'm like, "Uh, okay. I, hold on, I'm going to restart a Twitter account. So I reopened a Twitter account, and then from there it was like, game on. <laughs> <laughs> so I realized that there was genuinely an interest in making Doctrine kind of fun and amusing, and at least hopefully sparking some interest from a, a different a novel audience, a younger audience that were raised on this whole, well, I don't need Doctrine, it's, it's just boring stuff anyways. You know my NCOs or my my senior officers that it's oh, it's just it's all stagnant or it's it's too academic in it's conversation it's not valuable and it's like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. this stuff is extremely valuable and I get sometimes it can be hard to read but if you're taught how to read it mm-hmm. if you mentor individuals how to read it in a way that's unique maybe we can make it a bit more user friendly and that's kind of how the doctrineatrix came back into back into functionality again or how I the Doctrineatrix underscore C2 which is my current account the way I sort of embraced the idea of sharing doctrine with the wider world mm-hmm.
0: so. yeah and so let's let's uh, talk about a couple of these aspects a- as you mentioned doctrine can be very dry sometimes it's like reading the dictionary Yes, and as we all know uh, military twitter and army twitter and, and social media in general um, can be let's say forgettable um, and you're very good at social media. You're very good at connecting often esoteric parts of doctrine in ways people can understand and appreciate. Um, the uh, dog pictures help that a lot too.
2: <laughs> Make it fun.
0: So, so Make how did you how did you come to this place where you are very good at social media engagement with a topic that that can be at best very dry?
1: So, I think I learned how to engage, or I learned how to structure the way I viewed engagement. Um, first of all, from watching the civilian sector, specifically the civilian military history community. Um, there's a handful of individuals who are twitter historians out there who, who genuinely know how to take what some people would consider a, a dry, kind of difficult topic or a very niche topic and make it applicable and engaging for a wider community and audience. I thought that was genuinely inspiring when I saw it. Um, and then their guidance or their their thoughts on you have to sort of make a plan. You you make a general vision for how you want to communicate that information. For me, when it came to to selecting books and to selecting, you know, either a vignette or, or a funny picture or something that would help capture audience, it came down to, you know, can I be humorous but still respectful? Can I find a way to connect so that a young platoon leader or platoon sergeant could look at that and be like, ah, oh, I could I could grab that manual and for 15 minutes sit down with my soldiers and have a conversation about something. I will say that current events have a way of getting shared on Twitter, and such a method that hey, you know, it's actually great for us to be able to pull from events in the Ukraine, events that are occurring in the Indo-Pacific theater, and mm-hmm. be like, hey, here is. Here's a way for us to do this. Right.
0: Here's a destroyed bridge. Here's our gap crossing doctrine.
1: Yeah. And you know, you share that along with an amusing picture, either of, of my dog, because she's she is wonderful. She is I'm, the
0: star of your Twitter.
1: She is amazing. But also along with it, you share something, oh, it's like here I am sharing a book, sharing also part of my museum background, mm-hmm. which is fine art, sharing a picture, because I'd love for soldiers to get find novel ways to have professional development tools other than just military history museums so you share that plus you also share a cocktail or you share something hip and trendy and next thing you know you're like oh everybody likes that we're gonna get some more then (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm. have some more
0: yeah it's and and you you lead us in a direction that this podcast must inevitably go which is the connection between doctrine and history oh yes so we we as the the history department here at cgsc and and kind of the nucleus of army history there's lots of nuclei there's lots of decisive points of army history but this is one of them um, we don't much interact with the current doctrine beyond how it applies to how we act in the classroom so what connections do you see between doctrine doctrine writing and history
1: so first and foremost like if I were to tell somebody how do you you know what what is the method in which somebody writes a manual versus the method in which somebody writes a manuscript for history, right? It both requires depth of research. Mm-hmm. You have to go back into primary source data. You'll have to actually look at the way the academic community discusses those events and whether or not that discussion is relevant or if it's biased because that will feed into how do you want to structure the thesis? Same thing with a field manual or with an ADP or even with a techniques manual. There is a general theme that you want to get after, a thesis, hey, I need to be able to conduct a gap crossing or I need to be able to do combined arms breach, mm-hmm. I have to be able to do uh, occupy a command post, those kinds of things. And then turn around and also say, well, I have to know how I did it previously how we talked about it previously, the current language and lexicon that is used, and then I need to go out and actually see firsthand how are we doing these things out in the field, Mm -hmm. and use facts, findings, assumptions that are well informed from places like Center for Army Lessons Learned, and and that sort of research material, or NTC's observations, or JRTC's observations, and pull that in, and that becomes this basis of, of really solid research for you to structure mm-hmm. a manuscript around same thing and then it goes eventually over to an editor and they put red pen all over it and you're like I am a horrible writer
0: yeah, we've all lived that life <laughs> yeah.
1: there's always the second reviewer yep I will say that our editors um, they're extremely experienced and those individuals while some of them don't have any military service themselves they understand almost certain times better than some of our some of our leadership how to employ military formations and they understand how operations work Mm -hmm. together they they get the concepts so when you see an editor come back and they're like yeah but you're you're not explaining the hierarchy of amdc you're not explaining the appropriate use of command and support relationships well and it's like They are right and they are good.
0: (laughs) I've been fortunate enough to have an editor like that, and that's they're invaluable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, we can definitely talk about how we use um, doctrine in our own history classes at CGSC, but I know you also help out with Army University Press and their books and then their films to use history to teach doctrine. So, you can tell us a little bit about how you use history to teach doctrine? So, I I love the AUP
1: community, right? First of all, their, their documentaries that they're doing right now are, they're just on point, so good. Chef's kiss. Perfect chef's kiss. Um, so what they end up doing is they will, they will come away with this fabulous, you know, a fabulous lineup of how they, or a, a script and storyboard of how they want to teach, and then they'll go back and they'll look at, so what does the historical doctrine show us? Now what does the current terminology, how does how does technique actually go into it? They, so it's a back and forth, and there is a AUP liaison that works with us and a liaison that we provide to them where we run back and forth with ideas. Um, And because we have this great working relationship down at the press, we're able to actually go down and provide sometimes even script reading for them Mm -hmm. to make sure that the words that we've written are communicated appropriately Mm -hmm. and with the right nuance in some of their, their script and uh, speaking roles. When it comes to them providing back to us, they they provide us with a lot of vignette material. Um, two sources that I go to vin- for vignettes is, first of all, I'll look to to see things like the Lisco series mm-hmm. books that they produce, or I'll go to um, any one of their amazing papers that they've gotten, the, the repository, they're written by brains way bigger than mine. And the other place that I go overwhelmingly is um, is back into the, the repository of Sam's monographs and to MMAS monographs. So if a student out there, if you've ever wondered whether or not your monograph gets read, oh yeah, it's been read by somebody like me who is who is canvassing for either podcast fodder to ask questions of our senior leadership or I'm looking for information about good historical examples that
2: are well researched and timely mm-hmm. for for material I'm gonna put into books and also, because yeah. you mentioned those patterns and looking at patterns mm-hmm. through history and kind of the best practices or lessons learned and how we can turn that into doctrine. So, yep. looking back into history and saying, oh, this was the perfect, yeah. maybe not perfect, but one of the best executed wet gap crossings. Best like, bad idea. You know, best bad idea. You know, we talked about Nancy, France, 1944, and how can we use that to illustrate maybe how to do a wet gap crossing in the future? Yeah. That's awesome. So a
0: question for you, a more detailed question about the evolution of doctrine. When you pick up a 100-5 operations manual from the past, which is now FM three O, it's very thin. Um, You could probably fit two 1980s 100-5s in the current three O. So first of all, why is that? Why is the operations manual now much denser than it used to be?
1: Ah, so that is, uh, it's it's a little bit of, of kind of, a little bit of also, we, we we had a manual for a while that discussed uh, echelon-specific operations, mm-hmm. um, and then we, we lost it. Uh, fun factor, a peek behind the screen about how doctrine works is it's written in time and space by people. So on occasion, you may get your timelines for how we evolve doctrine desynced. Not bad, not good. There's there's nothing, it's, it's just the way that things are. right? one person can only write, mm-hmm. can only produce, can only staff so much at one time. It's how things are. So what ended up happening with 2017's edition of FM3O was for a while we had lost the Theater Army Corps and Division manual. Mm-hmm. when we were in the process of redeveloping it. So the two timelines got desynced from each other. So nine, in order nine, to, yeah. to kind of hold that, that doctrine together and to provide it to make sure that we didn't lose it from the force, Um, And that it was there for people who needed it, especially as we were returning to large-scale combat operations and returning to armed conflict against a peer threat. And we were having those discussions again coming off of global war on terror. It's it's tough to to visualize that without understanding why divisions and cores may be a unit of action Mm -hmm. now. So it was introduced and kept into the book. Until such time as our new uh, echelon-specific tactics manuals came online, and once they did, now we were able to peel some of that information and house it appropriately. Mm-hmm. And then, as far as you know, why we're eighty-two and eighty-six, and, and those books so thin—different formations, different mm-hmm. language, different different views of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also there was a, an entire body of knowledge that underpinned a lot of that. That for some of us, you know. It, there, there used to be a book about booby traps. There used to be manuals about mm-hmm. amphibious landing operations. A lot of that stuff is now has now gone away. We're slowly but surely reintroducing it, but but books may thin and expand based off of what we feel we need to we need to share, so mm-hmm. that way we don't forget.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we've kind of touched on one of the more important periods of Army history, which is the the. Post-Vietnam, pre-Desert Storm period, which is in many ways an effective case study for, for doctrine and the development of doctrine, both negative and positive. We 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 also have to remember: yes, this produced airland battle, but it also produced active defense.
1: You know, the funny thing is, looking back at active defense um, and looking back at airland battle and the individuals, the the personalities that wrote those manuals, because you you can't you can't not see personality coming out in, in field manuals, mm-hmm. especially in big books like Operations.
0: And we're talking, so William Depew, Don Starry, Huba Sega, people yeah. like that.
1: Yeah, those individuals did have a lot of, there was a lot of, um, not clout per se, but there's, like I said, personality that comes mm-hmm. along with, with guiding the writing efforts. And it's the same way now. You look at 2017's edition with General Lundy, amazing, you know, this person had a big personality, and the writing team that he brought together, also very, very passionate, very, very focused on what they needed to communicate. Now, when it comes to active defense versus airland battle, and this is just my personal opinion after having looked at both books, I actually, and this may be heresy, I really like active defense. The work that came out of the 76 era um, was was an army that was wrestling mm-hmm. with a huge traumatic event, uh, something that it was. It, you know, yeah. Of course, everybody wants a noble, a noble campaign, mm-hmm. right? You want big maneuver on giant steps. Oh, it would be so beautiful. But at the same time, we're wrestling with this traumatic experience of counterinsurgency, of battling armed conflict, but also to a certain extent, this kind of bubbling insurgency that works under the surface, the two of them run hand in hand when it comes to operations. We have offense, we have defense, and we have stability. It all works together. I think not enough credit is given to that to that team that produced that manual, because it really was looking at how do I capture those lessons learned, and then how do I not forget them? Which mm-hmm. is one of the, I know, I know it is out there in the community right now, this feeling for, for my generation. Like, please don't lose everything that we've just Mm -hmm. gone through learning. We need it codified and captured in doctrine so we don't forget it. And it needs to constantly be revisited because some of us, a lot of us, I think, feel that this way of war may be the way of war for a while. Mm -hmm. And operations and our army needs to reflect those lessons and to know that that's a potential yeah, a
2: best bad idea for the future.
0: Yeah. You know, let me ask you a, a dumb civilian question. So there
2: are no dumb questions. <laughs> <comes> <laughs> yeah, it's it's only good all. doctrine. That's what I say. There's no <laughs> dumb questions. So
0: the the question is, the the worry is that the shift in doctrine focus has gone from counterinsurgency to what what we call LISCO or, or MDO big you know armor formations. Yeah. Why not write a coin doctrine manual and have it on the shelf if the next war is coin? and then write the LISCO or MDO manual and have that as well?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. Part of me always thinks though that when it comes down to operations, if I were to, and this is you know, a doctrine writer who has a lot of time on her hands to sit and think and, and write and research, there is something to be said for, for seeing that a battlefield any campaign has a flavor of all of that Mm -hmm. there will always be if operations truly are you know the the intermixing of offense defense and stability which it is then it stands to reason that counterinsurgency will run along in the same swim lane as as armed conflict or as as combat operations as we know them whether it's you know a large maneuver of tank formations or combined arms breaches. There's still going to be an insurgency out there. I don't want to divorce those two things mm-hmm. away from each other. But there is, there were lessons that we learned um, both that we relearned coming out of, off of Vietnam and then we, we watched with how the Soviets dealt with Afghanistan and then we relearned it ourselves in GWAT. This is you know yes, FM-324 is still going to be absolutely vital um, as and matter that's fact, the
0: 324 is is the counterinsurgency okay. book
1: um it's still it's still out there and it's still you know we go through the process of reviewing it i think there is what i would love to see someday especially with young young majors that are out there right now um, taking an active interest in all the books mm-hmm. don't just focus in on the one that has the shiny the shiny constellation of gos twitter painted it's also, you know, the, 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 all the unloved, unlovely doctrine, you know, the comp sec and OPSec manuals of the world, the counterinsurgency book, even though it's not de rigueur to talk about right now. Please dust them off, read them, and then provide feedback when staffing goes out or when worldwide staffings occur. And also, along with it, write, God, write about these things because someone like me is reading when people write, but also when folks talk about it on social media, when they bring those conversations up
2: in professional journals like Military Review. We mm-hmm. We're reading it and we're watching. No, that's excellent. So um, I'm not really sure where this question is going, but it's going to Let eventually go. come up with a question. <laughs> is so we, in our history classes, we do use a lot of the fundamental maybe frameworks or models to help teach history. So we go through DIME, um, National instruments, uh, instruments of Natural Power, dot mil pf so when we Ooh. brought up active defense and air land battle like dot mil pf just started singing to me um and those i think will never really go out of style even if they do adjust a little bit but we're just talking about uh, about things that maybe are not as common anymore but they're not obsolete mm-hmm. but people only have so much time yeah. right you only have so much time to read you might have that 15 minutes at starbucks but you might need to dedicate that to something more specific to your mos so if our students only had really one thing to focus on, what would you recommend? So prior to getting here, um, before you you walk in the doors of
1: of the Lewis and Clark Center, the first thing I'd say is read cover to cover ADP 101, which is the doctrine primer. Understand how the language and the taxonomy works because you'll use it and you'll wield that time that you have or the time that you can afford to give up to, to studying doctrine more effectively if you know worse stuff sits in the taxonomy, and sits in the overall lexicon. And then also along with it, just if you get the chance, um, download the, the um, oh my gosh, Operational Terms and Graphics, uh, that those two manuals, so it's a dot one and a dot two that go along with mm-hmm. it, they're FMs. Those two books will provide you with terms. So if you hear something, you, know, you can under like the table. Like center gravity. Yeah. You know what it is. Under the table, so repetitiously Google it. Or you can go <laughs> back to that, you know, and control F within the, the dictionary and then turn around and say, all right, now I know where that is. Along with it, you get who is the proponent manual for that term. And then all the other manuals that use it as well. And you can go find what you need and be more efficient in the way you use doctrine. Then the other book I would, honest, if, if I were a young CGSC major, other two books. I'd get very comfortable with ADP50 and FM50, because obviously that's where our plans and orders production Mm -hmm. doctrine is. And then also ADP60 and FM60, and that's the idea of command and staff organizations and understanding how mission command is a philosophy is supported and bolstered by command and control systems. It gives you the ability to be able to do that decentralized execution through centralized planning with an appropriate staff and use the C2 systems very effectively even whether it's whether you're talking about it here at the classroom or you're preparing for for exercises mm-hmm. during the class period itself
2: so that gives you the foundation and then if they have more time or they know that they're going to Korea if they know they're going to yep. Poland then they can expand from that foundation to read other manuals
1: absolutely i think along with it is just on occasion wander into the adp website Um, and actually just sort of familiarize yourself with where stuff is hidden within the website itself because you're gonna find titles where you're like, oh, I didn't even know that we had a book about military working dogs, how fascinating, or we had one about pack animals, or we have a unit field sanitation and it talks all about poop, which is incredibly important, you know, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. turns
0: out you can't just burn it.
1: I mean, you could, I'm just saying. You can. There's other ways Mm -hmm. of dealing with this problem.
0: (laughs) So I I want to return to a a point you made earlier, because I think it's important. Um, Dr. Riato asked the question kind of how the uniform folks might approach this. Um, But I want to return to the point you made about doctrine as material culture, Um, both physically, right, because, you know, doctrine books have a look, but also this idea is doctrine as artifact, or even doctrine as myth, if we use Mm -hmm. that term kind of in the the literal meaning of the term, right? It carries a truth. Uh, so, so can you expand a little bit on that, and especially for, for people who might be historians looking at this and saying, well, we need to know a little bit about how armies fight, but really we want to m- know more about what they did rather than their doctrine. So, so what do you mean by kind of this idea of doctrine as material culture?
1: It is, you know, doctrine is, like I said, it's written by people for a time and, and being, a force in being. So when you see, or when you're trying to talk about battles that occurred, going back to to the doctrine, the historic doctrine that guided a formation or guided a force gives you an indication of, well, just how did they view the employment of combined arms? How did they view the employment of, uh, of fire support systems? How did they approach command and control? Was it very centralized? Was it decentralized? How did they use the non-commissioned officers? Those kinds of things which are hinted at all the time in doctrinal manuals. It doesn't, even the obsolete older ones have a very, very, they have hints and indications. And as historians, when you're looking at these books, I suddenly discovered, and when I looked at it with a historical eye, oh, this is showing me glimmers of what was and giving me the appropriate, giving me a way to read how individuals, how people like U.S. Grant maneuvered, understanding why Hans Gadarian is the man to talk about Command and control of forces in the hurricane; those kinds of things, where you're like, ah, now I see why, why this person is the way that they are, why the formation behaved the way it did. It's because the doctrine, the doctrine was written that way. Um, along with it, there is little glimmers of things that come out about how a society and how a military interact within doctrine, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's subtle. It's very subtle. Like I said, the the idea that gender integration into the combat arms. Suddenly, we, when we realize that it's patronizing to only refer to a commander as he.
0: Literally patronizing.
1: It is. You know, next thing you know, you're like, wow, I'm not, you know, here I am as a, a young female in the military service. Um, now I'm I'm seen, you mm-hmm. know. I, a commander can be not necessarily he or she, they're just they, the commander, mm-hmm. or a soldier. They are an individual who is seen, not just for for their bits, right, mm-hmm. and that's important. I think that is incredibly important to show inclusion. Um, along with it, little things like, you know, for years, we when we produce these manuals, especially the capstone ones, we have a tendency to to put in historic quotes, and the idea is it may spring some interest in an individual to go back and ah, here's a quote from Field Marshal Slim. I want to know more about this person. You're hoping to stoke just a minor curiosity or some mild curiosity in a reader. But along with it, for the first time ever, in the edition that we are preparing to produce in October, um, we will have a woman, a military theorist, a woman, quoted in the manual for the first time, in army manuals for the first time, and that's—I got chills. I know, I did too. When I when I first really thought about what that meant, you know, for years, as a woman serving, as a woman writing even when I was doing my own contributions to, to FM3O for this, this current edition preparing to come out, um, and I was looking back at the history, I, I went to the classics, right, of, of maritime operations, and I'm like, oh, Nimitz, and I want maybe, I don't know, some Chesty Puller or something, something cool like that, Like right? orbit. <laughs> the, the Marines yes. love you
2: now for that Chesty Puller. I,
1: I, you, know, you advocate hard. Next thing you know, you're like, oh, I am a woman. I am somebody who believes in the power that, that women have always been present in military theory and military doctrine. 20% of the doctrine community is female, you know, it's normal female writers um, and editors. Gosh, most of our editing community and a lot of our professional journals as well are women. Mm-hmm. So it stands to reason I should have been the person. And it was somebody on Twitter who brought it up saying, hey, uh, so you, you know, in this initial draft, you guys quote a lot of you know, some some interesting characters. Are you gonna put a woman in there anytime soon? And it's like, oh, 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 that, that, ooh, that hurts, that <laughs> stings. And, you know, that that realization that mm-hmm. now we're gonna start, I think as a Doctrine community, leaning a little bit more on some of the historians to say, hey, tell me about some, tell me about some theorists who are not necessarily, haven't been heard, but need to be mm-hmm. heard.
0: Christine de Paizan. Oh, gosh.
1: Right, uh, Barbara Tuckman's. I love Babs, love Miss Babs, but she is she is the entrance, right, to everything else that's out there for for military theory and history and, and women writers. I I still believe firmly that you know we haven't looked, and I, Vanya Etimova Bellinger. Thank, mm-hmm. Thankfully, she is starting to look into Marie's contribution.
0: That's Marie Klauswitz.
1: Cla- Marie yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think she's, you know, Baron or Countess von Brühl, like she is amazing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Along with it, I think that there is some other women and some other, you know, those who would be considered marginalized or, or historically unheard communities mm-hmm. who need to be heard because they were, they're contributing to the body of knowledge and they have something to say. We should let them say it.
0: All right. Colonel Dean, it's been a fascinating conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.
0: Thank you. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.